The Blunt Post with Vic. Good morning, happy Monday, and welcome to The Blunt Post with Vic. I am your host, Vic Jaramie, the editor and publisher of The Blunt Post. The Blunt Post with Vic is a program that covers national, regional, and local headline news, offers analysis and commentary, and I interview members of Congress, local elected officials, and other high-profile public figures. Dr. Bedros Dermatosian is the Hyman Rosenberg Associate Professor in Judaic Studies and Vice Chair of the Department of History at the University of Nebraska at Lincoln. Dr. Dermatosian is also the President of the Society of Armenian Studies. Born and raised in the multicultural Old City of Jerusalem, he is a graduate of the Hebrew University of Jerusalem and completed his PhD at the Columbia University. Dr. Dermatosian's new book is The Horrors of Adana, Revolution and Violence in the Early 20th Century. It deals with the massacres of the Armenians by the Ottoman Turks leading up to the Armenian Genocide. Good morning, uh, Dr. Petros uh, uh, Dermatosian. Uh, thank you for being on the Blunt Post with Vic this morning. How are you today? Thank you, Vic. The pleasure is mine to participate in your um, in your program. I appreciate it. I believe that I have your permission to call you Petros going forward by your first yes. name. Yes, go okay. ahead, please. I appreciate it. Um, congratulations on your book, uh, a very well uh, well done and much needed book, uh, The Horrors of Adana, uh, Evolution and Violence in the Early 20th Century. Thank you, Vic. Um, how is the book doing and uh, how are you involved uh, in promoting it? Yes, uh, we, are, uh, we are doing fine and uh, the book is, uh, you know, is, is uh, being promoted by my publicist, uh, Lucien Kasparian, and myself. And uh, so uh, it's, it's going well. It's the beginning of the promotion. I've been invited to many talks and I've been, uh, uh, been being interviewed by different outlets too. And, uh, and I have to say, it's an honor that your program is the first one, was the first program to interview me uh, on this book. So it's a pleasure. Wow. Well, I'm happy about that. You are a professor at the uh, University of Nebraska in Lincoln. Um, you're an academic, you're a historian, uh, you've written uh, many other essays and documents um, about Middle Eastern studies, as well as the Armenian genocide specifically. And this book uh, explores the massacres of Adana. And for those who don't know, uh, the precursor to the Armenian genocide of 1915 uh, were a series of massacres that started in the late 19th century um, in different parts of Anatolia or um, uh, you know, Eastern part of Turkey today. And uh, one of them was the massacre of Adana, uh, which resulted in the death of about, uh, about 20,000 Armenians, I believe. You know, it was a sign of what was to come. So um, I'll, I'll stop there and let you sort of give us a, a little bit overview of the book and the events of the Adana mass massacres. Yes, definitely, uh, Vic. the The book was in uh, the book 
the uh, the book was uh, part of a larger part of a larger trilogy. My first book was called "The Shattered Dreams of Revolution from Liberty to Violence in the End of the Ottoman Empire." It mainly concentrated on the 1908 revolution, which was a turning point in the history of the Ottoman Empire and that of the Middle East. Uh, it was uh, initiated by the Young Turks in order to get rid of the despotic regime of Sultan Abdul Hamid II and institute a new regime based on constitutionalism and parliamentarism, kind of a progressive vision. But as I demonstrate in the first book, that vision collapsed from the first day of the revolution due to ambiguities and contradictions of the ideals of the revolution. On the one hand, they wanted to have uh, the trilogy of liberty, uh, fraternity, and equality, but they wanted to do it in an authoritarian manner. So that was an, uh, that was a contradiction to 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 the ideals of the revolution. So basically, in the first book, I concentrated on the Armenians, Arabs, and Jews, and the way in which they viewed and reacted to the to the revolution. So there is a lot of pessimism going on in the first uh, first constitution period, uh, the post nineteen oh eight revolution, and eventually we see that this dream of living in equality and brotherhood. And being, you know, and 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 leaving the uh, the Abdel Hamid regime in the past and starting a new page in the history of the Ottoman Empire collapsed, and the result is is, is an escalation of uh, escalation of inter-ethnic relations, and uh, the result was a counter-revolution which happened at the same day or the, the uh, prior one day prior to the Adana massacres. So basically. The shattered dreams revolution ends, and the and the horrors of the Adana start. So that's the second project, the horrors of Adana. So the horror of Adana starts when the shattered shattered dreams of revolution book ends, and the next book in this trilogy it would be on the Balkan Wars of 1912 and 1913, specifically viewed from the point of view of the non-dominant groups uh, and the way in which they react to the wars. And most importantly, I think I'd like to concentrate on the policy of the Young Turks and the ruling regime towards the Armenians as well as other groups in terms of viewing them as fifth, fifth columnists or viewing them as non-trusted, uh, distrusted elements uh, within the Ottoman Empire and how that eventually led to the, uh, to the beginning of the Armenian genocide. The Horrors of Adana is about the Adana massacres that took place in southeast, south, sorry, southern part of the Ottoman Empire in the province of Adana in 1909. So basically, uh, the first day that the counter-revolution takes place in, in the capital in Istanbul, next day there is, the, there is the beginning of a major wave of violence in the province of Adana targeting the, uh, the uh, Armenian population. The violence starts on April 14 in the city of Adana and ends on April 16 in the city of Adana. But as the violence, as, as, the, as, as, the, uh, as the news of the massacres starts spreading in the province, there are more waves of violence and massacres taking place in different parts of the province. Then the, uh, then the violence and the massacres spreads to the the province of Aleppo, and then there is, there, there is another phase there of violence. So eventually the first wave subsides, 
and uh, everyone uh, hoped that uh, that the massacres had ended. Uh, troops were sent from the from the, from uh, from the west western part of Anatolia to Adana in order to preserve order. But instead of preserving order, they were involved in a second wave of massacres between uh, April 25th to 27th. So, so in, in, in all in all, there were uh, two waves of massacres targeting Armenians, predominantly Armenians, but also some minor Christians, uh, leading to the death and massacre of more than 20,000 Armenians, but also 2,000 Muslims were killed by the hand of Christians in a defensive way. because. Uh, you know, uh, it is important to indicate that Armenians also killed uh, some Muslims, basically as a, as a defense uh, against the mob that was attacking them. The book is complex in itself because I'm just trying to uh, simplify here the arguments. It's a complex book, book, book I should say, which is um, which under, tries to understand these massacres not from an essentialist point, point of view that Muslims killed Christians or Christians killed Muslims, but try to problematize these massacres and put it in a larger context of understanding the history of the region, the economic history, because in the end of the day, um, the uh, region of Adana was a major cotton hub producing cotton, and uh, it was an important political center, but also historic center for, for Armenia, because uh, the region of Adana, uh, which is situated in the larger region of Cilicia, was the last independent kingdom that Armenians had after coming down under the Ottoman rule. So politically, economically, socially, and religiously, uh, the region has been an important part of, uh, for Armenians, uh, of Armenian collective memory too. Uh, the research is also uh, complex in terms of uh, interdisciplinary approach. I try to understand these massacres by, uh, by uh, analyzing three, four different themes in order to explain what, why these massacres took place. The first theme is that of public sphere. The second one is that of, uh, of uh, uh, emotions. The third one is that of, um, uh, that of uh, anger and then followed by the humanitarian intervention, humanitarian intervention. So it's, uh, so uh, through these rumors, sorry, the second one is rumors, the third one is uh, emotions, and then the humanitarian intervention. Rumors being misinformation, disinformation, disinformation. propaganda, etc. Yeah, an extremely important aspect of even in today's political Political situation around the globe. Absolutely. One thing I, 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 I try to indicate here that the massacres of Adana is not only about the past massacres, the similar trends of rumors, emotions, anger still resonate in different parts of the world. So, uh, so of course, every massacre is unique, but there are specific paradigms and specific uh, structures within massacres that takes, take place in different parts of the globe. And for this sake, I try to uh, compared the Adana, Adana massacres to two other waves of massacres that took place around the globe. One is the Odessa massacre in Ukraine against the Jews in 1905, and the second one is the massacres against the Sikh in 1984 in India. So these are important aspects. And 
I'd like to concentrate here more on emotions and rumors. Of course, one of the important aspects that precipitated these uh, ethnic relations in the region was that was the rumor that Armenians and Armenian revolutionaries were going to rise, initiate a revolution, and bring about the ancient kingdom of Cilicia. This was going to be done through massacring the Muslims, whereby the European warships were going to come into uh, the uh, Mediterranean coast of Mersin, which is the uh, which is the uh, which is the uh, seashore of uh, of the province of Adana, the port, the main port of province of Adana, and eventually lead to a humanitarian intervention uh, with the aim of helping to create the kingdom of Cilicia. Mm-hmm. And this is extremely important, this part of rumor. So these rumors actually were part of the collective memory of the Muslim population living in Adana, even prior to the 1908 revolution. They were there, and, uh, but they were, uh, to a certain extent, were spreading in a very uh, weak public sphere. Now, the 1908 revolution opens up the Pandora's box of problems that were simmering in the empire prior to the revolution. You start seeing that these rumors take new new format and start spreading due to the uh, due to the freedom of information due to the freedom of uh, speech all kinds of freedoms that came about by the revolution but also armenians at the time start celebrating the revolution start walking on the streets carrying guns carrying symbols of national past celebrating the constitution and specifically demonstrating their cultural nationalism, all right? And this does not sit well with the disgruntled elements of the ancien regime or the people who, who, were, who, who, uh, who lost the most as a result of the revolution. And eventually you have agents provocateurs, these specific agents who start disseminating these types of rumors that look, Armenians already started with their cultural nationalism. They are carrying guns. They, are, they have a major intent now to massacre the Muslim population and eventually with the aim of creating a major uh, empire, sorry, major kingdom, which is going to be the kingdom of Cilicia. Now, a lot of personalities are, are involved in this. I don't want to mention names here. It's all in the books because mentioning names might be confusing. But one thing is important to understand that the ethnic tensions start dramatically rising in the post-revolution period. Emotions are very high because now there's the, the balance that existed in the past, which was, an, which was an unjust balance, I should say, where Armenians were suppressed and the, and the dominant element was ruling. And suddenly that whole balance shifted. And now Armenians saying, you know, if you believe in equality and freedom and legality, which, which are... Uh, which are the uh, byproducts of the of the revolution. And of course, we have to remember that the Young Turk Revolution was very much affected by the uh, French Revolution of, of 1879, uh, uh, sorry, uh, 19, uh, 1989. Uh, you mean 1789? 17, sorry, 1789, I keep forgetting. 1789. 
uh, with its mottos of uh, fraternity, liberty, and equality, uh, it had a huge influence of, on the young Turks and their vision of the Ottoman Empire. But like other revolutionaries, they took the French model as an ahistoric model without problematizing the problems of the French Revolution. And uh, they wanted to take it as a model and, you know, and uh, implement it, put this model on the Ottoman Empire. It didn't succeed, of course, uh, for for specific reasons that I. I want to I want to pause there, if I if I may. This is the Blunt Post with Vic on KPFK ninety point seven FM. I am your host, Vic Jorami, and you are listening to my interview with Dr. Bedros Dermatosian from the University of Nebraska at Lincoln, and we are discussing his latest book, The Horrors of Adana: Revolution and Violence in the Early Twentieth Century. You're on. You're onto something really uh, great. Um, it's so apropos for what's happening today. Um, and I wanted to say, and of course, even the French Revolution wasn't all that successful because we had a revolution to take down the monarchy. But Napoleon, of course, came to power and decided that, uh, oh yeah, maybe I will go back to monarchy and be the, not only a king this time, but I'll be a, I'll be an emperor, and start invading. But <clears throat> what strikes me is how um, lies, disinformation, uh, propaganda, uh, some are, um, a lot of it uh, intended, um, really can balloon into a mass hate, a mass, uh, um, you know, uh, just mass hatred, um, which result in, in massacres and genocides and such. And um, it also sort of contradicts Turkey's narrative in, in genocide denial that um, all, all types of minorities lived uh, peacefully in the Ottoman Empire um, and do today, which both are <clears throat> false. Um, Armenian genocide was, of course, uh, I saw the massacre of one and a half million Armenians, but uh, 750,000 Assyrians were, were massacred, as well as Greeks and uh, you know, Yazdis and Jews and, and many other uh, ethnic minorities, religious minorities. But what I wanted to <clears throat> go into before you go into your next three um, items is one of my questions was going to ask you about the similarities between the Adana massacres and the, the Odessa pogroms of 1871 in Russia uh, when, when Jews were, I'm sorry. 1905. Oh, okay. <clears throat> I but there was one in 1871. Yes, so yes. There's okay. a long phase of pogroms happening in Russia against the Jews, beginning the right 1871. But the one I compare is 1905. So let's talk about that. <clears throat> so similar to the uh, Adana massacres, the uh, the Jews in Odessa were, uh, were of course discriminated against uh, and. Uh, you know, there was a lot of tensions, mostly economic tensions. Uh, Odessa was a, uh, was a multi-ethnic city. You had the Greeks, Italians, and, and Russians. Uh, all of them were against the Jews and the, and the rising economic power of the Jews. And the 1905 has also is connected to the 1905 revolution, uh, the first revolution in Russia against the monarchy, uh, whereby, uh, you know, uh, uh, certain sections from the Russian society wanted to have uh, constitutionalism, mostly constitutional monarchy, 
and after heavy uh, pressure on the on the Tsar, he agreed to he agreed to you know institute a, 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 a constitution which became constitution monarchy. And of course, 1905 was going to become in the collective memory of the Bolsheviks as the dress rehearsal of the Bolshevik Revolution of 1917, which Vladimir Lenin sent himself. But there are a lot of similarities. First of all, you have a revolution, and then you have uh, you have the, uh, the allegedly people behind the revolution, because in the case of the Adana massacres, you have the Armenians who are seen as the collaborators with the young Turks again for the revolution. And they're the ones who are benefiting the most out of it supposedly. The same regarding the uh, 1905 uh, Russian revolution, you have the Jews behind it apparently, supposedly let's say, and they're the ones who are going to benefit the most out of it. Uh, similar, both cases, you have triggers that lead to the revolution, to the, to the massacres and the pogroms. In the case of the Armenians, the Armenian massacres, you have a personal altercation between two people, three people actually, and an Armenian, three Muslims and an Armenian, which leads to the uh, to the killing of uh, two of the Muslims, and hence that specific event becomes uh, the trigger that leads to the other massacres. Of course, we see in the course of history, whereby the background of a specific ethnic background or ethno-religious background of specific uh, uh, altercation becomes viewed in a magnifying class as the whole group has been targeted. Right. The same regarding uh, uh, regarding uh, Sikh, the Sikh massacres whereby, uh, where, where, whereby Indira Gandhi was killed by her two Sikh bodyguards. And then everyone said, you know, everyone started seeing that Sikh bodyguard as the bodyguards as the Sikh nation. Hence, you have kind of the similar to the, to the, to the case. Also, we have a precipitation of the massacres, pogroms in the case of the, in the, case of the uh, Jews in Odessa and Ukraine. And hence, you have, uh, 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 you have specific groups in both cases of agent provocateurs spreading rumors about the uh, about the role about the uh, about the uh, Armenians in case of the Adana and the Jews in case of thing that they 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 have more sinister aims in order to uh, uh, one gaining uh, upper hand in the economy or there's a second one economy and the revolution to that extent in the case of Odessa the other one Armenians want to establish the uh, the uh, the kingdom of Cilicia. But economic perspective or economic, uh, economic factors are also important in both cases, as from the perspective of the Greeks, Italians, and Russians, they wanted to uh, hit hard to the Jewish uh, economic sphere within, within Odessa. Similar to that for the, uh, for the Ottoman, for the, for the Turks and the Muslims, they wanted to also uh, attack the, uh, the Armenian economic quote-unquote superiority. As a matter of fact, towards the end of the 19th century and the beginning of 20th century, uh, less and less migrant workers were being in demand due to the technological advancement, advancement in the cotton production. And another important thing that also happens in the case of uh, Odessa is that you have a large migrant workers who are coming into these cities 
in the uh, in the case of Odessa, they're working in the docks. In the case of Ardana, we have 70 to 100,000 uh, migrant workers coming twice a year for the uh, for uh, harvesting and for tilling. Uh, one happens in the spring, and then the other in September, October, in the fall, autumn, fall, and eventually uh, leading to a major contentious situation in the region. So uh, when you have hundreds of or thousands of migrant workers, the majority of whom are Muslims, coming and working and realizing eventually that Armenians are uh, changing the modes of production by relying more and more on, uh, on, uh, on technology, uh, eventually they, there is a kind of an hatred and animosity against Armenians who are now kind of dominating the economic sphere. So when the massacres start in Adana, they also start attacking the machines of production, the machines of modernity, in order to destroy what was destroying their own livelihood. So there are a lot of similarities between both uh, the Odessa massacres and in the case of the Sikh massacres. Of course, anti-Semitism also played an important role as uh, also anti-Armenianism played an important role. Rumors played an important role. Fear, emotions are extremely important in all cases of massacres because, uh, because uh, the role that agent provocateurs play in these massacres is to create an enemy, which happens to be an imaginary enemy, you know, that the Jews are going to attack us, the Jews are going to control us. And in the case of Armenians, Armenians are going to kill us and they're going to establish the kingdom of Sudicia. So fear, emotions are specifically important aspect in order to understand these massacres. And uh, one thing I, I did not mention is that in the phase of the two massacres, between the two massacres in Adana, between, 14, uh, between the 14th of April and 16th of April, and then after the 16th of April until the 25th, there is a critical point within this, within this, this period whereby the Young Turk newspaper called Etidal starts publishing anti-Armenian articles where within a period in which public sphere was not restrained, the government did not, uh, did not control, put, put in control the whole media. And within these articles, they now write down the prophecy, kind of quote unquote, the prophecy that Armenians indeed attempted to rise against the, against the government in Adana in order to establish the kingdom of Cilicia. And they did that by massacring the Armenians. So everyone who had in his mind, in the back of his mind, that Armenians might rise, and we don't know what was happening at the time, even they were asking, so it's a kind of a confusing situation, Muslims running left and right, attacking Armenians, etc. But now they see written, and there is a lot of, you know, back then, or even today, you know, there's a lot, I mean, once you print something, it take, gets a lot of credibility. It was a fake news, okay? And so people started reading. You know, it's true, you know, what's what happened. They, they started saying, I mean, it's dead rise. And so eventually this would lead to the second phase of massacre, which was much more brutal than the first one, and thousands mm -hmm. of people were killed, Armenians in the city. It, uh, not to cut you off, but it reminds me of a recent, and I mean a few days ago, BBC report that Armenia was sending aircrafts and other weaponry to uh, Russia to use against Ukraine. 
which couldn't have been more absurd. And some of the things that were accusing Armenia of sending were like ships. It's like, where, where would that ship come from? Armenia is a landlocked nation. It has a lake and you can't put a ginormous uh, military ship on there. And, and it just goes to show that a media outlet like BBC, you know, almighty BBC can get, can get it so wrong. It's so absurd. I mean, you know, an average journalist with in 30 minutes can verify that that's just, you know, nonsense. And yet there it was, it was in print and, you know, people read it. And of course that was used heavily again uh, by Turkey and Azerbaijan uh, in their campaign of hate and uh, disinformation and violence against the Armenians that continues. So I just wanted to sort of uh, mention that, that reminded me of it. This is The Blunt Post with Vic on KPFK 90.7 FM. I am your host, Vic Jorami, and you are listening to my interview with Dr. Bedros Dermatosian from the University of Nebraska at Lincoln. And we are discussing his latest book, The Horrors of Adana, Revolution and Violence in the Early 20th Century. Bedros, continue. Yeah, BBC's coverage of the Second War, uh, the Armenian Genocide, is extremely problematic. Uh, their coverage of the Karabakh War was extremely problematic, biased towards the uh, Azerbaijanis, and, uh, you know, kind of even anti-Armenian uh, coverage. And, of course, we know the British interest, we know where oil, oil lies, and etc. I don't want to get into detail. Oh, yeah. I mean, um, I, I've interviewed uh, Baroness Cox uh, for my film Motherland. And, uh, you know, she talked about it. She said, uh, my colleagues basically say we have oil interests in Azerbaijan. Uh, and that's that. <clears throat> and, uh, you know, BP is the largest um, investor of, uh, of the, for the pipelines that go from uh, the Caspian Sea to the West so of course, but you know. So, anyways, I mean, BBC. It, it's <clears throat> it has been and still is one of many problematic media outlets that have um, uh, printed or reported disinformation. Includes New York Times, uh, Wall Street Journal, um, you name it, even LA Times. So, um, but uh, maybe maybe we should we should talk a little bit about what's going on today and the similarity of what happened in Adana and of course leading up to the 1915 genocide um, and uh, you know what happened two years ago almost two years ago in 2020 uh, when uh, Turkey you know the sort of like the modern nation to the uh, Ottoman Empire helped Azerbaijan orchestrate a genocidal assault and ethnic cleansing on the Armenians of Artsakh who live uh, in the independent Republic of Artsakh and massacred 5,000 plus Armenians, uh, something that goes on even today, uh, where they're trying to ethnically cleanse Artsakh uh, of its indigenous Armenian population. And so much of what you've talked about <clears throat> uh, has been sort of, um, the, it's the same tools that have been used by Azerbaijan and Turkey about uh, you know disinformation and demonizing Armenians and uh, that sort of thing. So I'd like to hear your perspective on it. 
thank you, Vic. Of course, uh, uh, the uh, second Artsakh war and the disasters, the uh, disastrous way, uh, Armenians lost more than 5,000 people, soldiers, civilians. And uh, of course, Azeris too lost a few thousand of their own soldiers who were became victims for Aliyev's clans, uh, you know, uh, uh, projects of uh, of uh, uh, attacking uh, the independent uh, the independent uh, republic of uh, Artsakh. Uh, I think in the end of the day, it comes down to the following issue: What does Armenia has to offer, just strategically or in terms of natural resources? Mm-hmm. Had Armenia been a country, a wool-producing country, this would never have happened. I agree. Unfortunately, Armenia does not have anything to offer to the corrupt international system. And hence, uh, you know, because uh, you have the Baku-Jehan line, you have uh, Azerbaijan as a strategic ally to the West, to, uh, to Israel, I should say, too, because... Uh, a lot of weapons were, you know, sold by the Israeli defense companies to uh, to the Azeris, specifically the UAVs and the Harops and the Kamikaze uh, uh, UAVs, and all of these played an important role in uh, raising the the you know. It was it was an unequal war, let's say, because you have uh, you have a country strong. Economic strong country with the with the triple budget of defense, Azerbaijan, backed by uh, another major country in the region, Turkey, uh, jihadists from Syria, and the latest Israeli technology, uh, attacked a weak independent republic, whose only aim is to live in peace and independence. It's not that these, this republic was provoking anything. Uh, there was a referendum in, in 1988 where they wanted to have their own independence, that autonomous republic. The majority of the population were Armenians. And eventually Azerbaijan you know, denied that independence. It led to a war in which Armenia was victorious. And of course, there, are, there were regions that had to be returned back to Azerbaijan. But all these regions, the six regions, should have been part of a larger package of P of, ter- of land for peace. But the Azeri side never agreed to that. This is my personal view. And uh, I also believe that the 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 uh, the conflict has had to be resolved in a diplomatic manner and not through violence. But Absolutely. for decades, they were discussing about this, and the consecutive governments within Armenia also, you know, were reluctant to sign such a peace treaty in which all the six, all all the territories were going to return back, and then we're going to discuss about the fate of the Armenians of Azerbaijan. Now, if you're an Armenian living in Artsakh, fate of Nagorno-Karabakh or Artsakh, if you're an Armenian living in Artsakh, would you return back under the Azeri rule? And that's the major question that we need to ask. You have a, you have a new generation that was born in the post-first 
Artsakh war, who does not have any idea about the experience of their uh, fathers and grandfathers with discrimination against Armenians. And now would, would these go back and live under the uh, authoritarian regime of the Aliyev clan? So uh, war took place. Uh, there was a major uh, propaganda against Armenians in the midst of international silence. There was no humanitarian intervention. As a matter of fact, in, all, in, in the history of Armenians in the 19th and 20th century, there hasn't been any humanitarian intervention. There has been humanitarian aid, but no humanitarian intervention. But in the case of Greece, Crete, and other places, you have humanitarian intervention. But for the Armenians, there hasn't been any, any humanitarian intervention. And of course, for the Europeans, for the United States, since they have strategic allies, uh, they are strategic allies with Turkey, with, uh, with Azerbaijan, uh, they, uh, they were ready to sacrifice the Armenians for that sake. Uh, the result of the war was disastrous, as I said. Uh, two large regions of Karabakh, or, of, or Artsakh per se, were lost, and thousands of Armenians left the Republic to Armenia. Maybe half of them, or more than half, I don't know, returned back under the Russian rule. Russian peacekeeping. And I don't know what the Russian peacekeeping troops are doing there either. Because a few days ago, there was a, they captured the village, the Azeris, which is supposed to be under the Armenian control and the Russian peacekeeping. And then apparently they returned back, etc. So basically, uh, what the Azeris are doing now, it's a, it's, a, it's a policy of intimidation by sending fake news, by sending, uh, you know, uh, threats to the Armenian villagers, you leave or we'll take your land. Uh, but one thing we have to remember, Vic, is that nothing in that region takes place without Russia's green light. Nothing in that region takes place without Russia's green light, because this is the Russian backyard or the neighborhood. So I think Russia gave the green light to, uh, to the Azeris to attack. And that green light had to do with Turkish-Russian relationships, specifically in, in Syria. Uh, their uh, their uh, business there regarding territories, regarding uh, regions of influence, but also regarding now uh, Turkey's uh, rising power in the region, bullying, in different countries, entering into Libya, into Syria, and they're controlling part of the opposition in Syria now, uh, basically uh, ready-made uh, kind of uh, ready troops to be deployed in different parts of the, of, of the world. And uh, to that extent, all of this happened in the 21st century with the, in, the, in, the, uh, in front of the eyes of the international community. Let's just, I'm, yes. I'm sorry, finish your thought because I want to add something real quick. Yeah, in front of the international community, whereby uh, no one cared as to what happened to the Armenians, regardless. Armenians mobilized, I should say, the whole diaspora mobilized. They did everything. They raised more than $150 million. They wrote articles here and there. 
but to that extent, the, uh, the major newspapers, as you mentioned earlier, were against Armenians in, in, in this war. You unpacked a lot, so I wanna sort of break it down a little bit and have some follow-up questions. For those that are, who are listening. This is The Blunt Post with Vic on KPFK 90.7 FM. I am your host, Vic Jorami, and you are listening to my interview with Dr. Petros Dermatosian from the University of Nebraska at Lincoln. And we are discussing his latest book, The Horrors of Adana, Revolution and Violence in the Early 20th Century. It's interesting. You are, you know, you're one of many academics and uh, experts who has uh, either suggested or just flat out said that the 2020 attack on Artsakh by Azerbaijan couldn't have happened without the green light of Putin, essentially. And this was a, a larger territorial struggle, if you will, between uh, Russia with its aspirations of sort of bringing back a, a new uh, USSR, Erdogan uh, bringing back uh, you know, his pan-Turkism aspirations and a, and a new Ottoman Empire, if you will, and of course, the, the, the West, the very West, uh, US and Britain and their aspirations of having control in the region and not allowing Russia to have as much influence and, and power. And uh, what happened was Artsakh and Armenia sort of fell victim. And as you said, not having uh, any natural resources to offer, at least not in great numbers to the West, what was there? for them to leverage, and that was nothing. You know, it's a very sad reality. It's a very sobering reality. <clears throat> and now Azerbaijan, again, has taken advantage of the, the war uh, unleashed on Ukraine and the fact that Russia is distracted and is uh, intimidating and uh, bullying our Armenians of Artsakh, taking villages and destroying churches and monuments and, uh, you know, historical antiquity, there's barely a, a mention from any media outlet. It's just, uh, it's really astounding to watch this sort of roll out on a daily basis. And, uh, and, and, and there's not much coverage anywhere. The fact that it's been over three weeks that Azerbaijan has cut off gas and electricity to the people of Artsakh. This is over 110,000 people who in freezing temperatures, you know, it gets really cold in Artsakh. It's a high elevation nation in the mountains <clears throat> without uh, heat and electricity. Imagine kids being born in hospitals that have no electricity or heat. I mean, it's just uh, unconscionable. So where is Amnesty? Where is Human Rights Watch? Where's the United Nations? And yet, um, you know, I see these fantastical tweets and, and rhetoric and all these great speeches coming out of their leadership that really don't correspond with uh, reality. Uh, so it's a really sad um, sort of dichotomy, kind of a double reality we're watching happen. Um, and your book sort of, your book could be written about today. I mean, your book is, you know, so much of it happened up until 2020, we used to talk about the Armenian genocide and think, you know, why didn't anyone do anything and, and this and that. And some of it we could justify as, 
well, telephones were just invented and, you know, you didn't have computers and this and that. Well, two years ago, we had all the means and yet the world turned a blind eye and allowed this to happen. Um, it's a, it's a, it's just a very sobering thought. It's exhausting to really watch this happen. And your makes your book um, even more important because the, the, the intention and the methods are very similar. And I think just my last word on this is, I think everything humans do, uh, everything we say and do are either motivated by love and by, or by fear. And I don't mean that in a sort of a kumbaya type of a way. I truly believe that all the negativity, it, at the end of the day, all the motivations that uh, bring on these sort of, sort of uh, atrocities, uh, it's just fear. It just comes from fear. And um, some of the things that you said was about fear, right? So fear the Armenians taking away your power or your lands or this or that. And I'll leave it at that so we can go back to, uh, to uh, the horrors of Adana revolution and violence in the early 20th century. Yeah, I mean, uh, you're definitely right. I just want to add to your, uh, you know, uh, everyone is concerned whether Putin is going to cut the gas uh, or ask for ruble with the, from unfriendly countries uh, to pay in ruble. Uh, but no one is saying anything, as, except there was one article, Vic, the other day about uh, it's not only that uh, Putin is cutting, it's, Putin is not the only one who's cutting the gas, uh, who is, is threatening to cut the gas. Look at what's happening in Nagorno-Karabakh, in Artsakh, and no one is talking about anything, you know. So it's, uh, it's a very, very sad uh, situation when you have also a regime in Armenia who is not able to deal with, the, with, with this conundrum, I should say. And uh, it, it, it begs the question, it begs the question whether democracy is the solution in these parts of the world. Look at, look at Armenia, look at Georgia, look at Ukraine. All of those countries passed through similar phase of colored revolutions. Ukraine was slapped in the, in, in the face. Georgia was slapped in the face by, by, by Russia. And I was expecting how, how is Putin going to uh, slap Armenia in the face in the wake of the Velvet Revolution? And we so got our answer. We got our answer, but the, 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 the guy who did his dirty job wasn't, uh, was Aliyev and it wasn't him. So maybe I, I see a strong connection there between the Velvet Revolution and the Artsakh War, Second Artsakh War, kind of tame Armenia that don't play the Western card here of democracy. This is our, my neighborhood, and that's when. Yeah, which so, is really sad because one of the things I've heard, and I spoke to Congresswoman Jackie Spear about this, one of the things I've heard is that, you know, United uh, Armenia, <clears throat> wise Armenia has a relationship with Russia, et cetera. Some people, and I don't mean to say that Congresswoman Spear was saying this, others have, without realizing that, <clears throat> if it wasn't for the Russian peacekeepers, the Azerbaijan would take over the rest of Artsakh and ethnically cleanse the entire place. But it also raises the, the issue that, you know, Congresswoman Spear was saying that we should celebrate and we should reward nations that have achieved democracy like Armenia did um, and help them. But the U.S. didn't. The U.S. failed. So U.S. wants to have its cake and eat it too. So the U.S. wants to 
uh, at least on the surface, wants every nation to be uh, a democracy, which I don't know if that's really true. I think uh, whichever model or system benefits the US most is what they want it to be. Uh, on the other hand, when a nation is democratic, like Armenia, among the very corrupt nations around it, it doesn't, uh, it doesn't help. It doesn't help uh, Armenia and it you know, leaves it out to dry. And, uh, and to this day, I mean, to this day, all we're getting from Secretary Blinken is uh, just toxic both sidedism over and over again, you know. We urge, the, we urge both sides to do this. We urge both sides. <clears throat> and I keep saying this analogy of walking into the home of a, a woman who's a battered wife and a wife beater. You don't sit them down and say, would like both of you to put your fists down. It's just the most absurd thing. Every, every time I hear, whether it's Secretary Blinken or it's Ann Lind before, you know, with OSCE or some other, um, you know, European or Charles Michel or someone like that. It's like, are you serious? You really think this is a 50-50 thing <laughs> happening? It's just really toxic. But I want to ask you one more thing before we run out of time is, you know, there's this push for a reconciliation between Armenia and Turkey. And some of it is fueled by President Biden uh, wanting Turkey, because he's not a fan of Erdogan, at least that we know, to reconcile with its neighbors, including Armenia. And Armenia is doing, I feel like Armenia is really going full force in trying to, you know, their best that they can to do this. I wonder what you think about this. You think it's even possible and your sort of perspective on this? Yeah, very good question and very timely question, Vic. Uh, I think uh, I am for reconciliation as long as the other part, the perpetrator, quote unquote, the perpetrator group, I call Turkey the perpetrator group, quote unquote, because there are the inheritors of the heirs to the, uh, to the, to the genocide regime to accept the historical uh, veracity of the Armenian genocide and come into terms with it. Otherwise, how can you really reconcile? I don't think they will. Yeah, I mean, that's their problem. I think that's not our problem. And uh, otherwise, how would you reconcile with the, with the government who keeps denying the Armenian genocide? It's not only denying, but puts millions of dollars into programs, academic programs and, uh, you know, publications and, you know, in, into different projects in order to co continue and deny and deny the Armenian genocide. So I think the, the problem is, is, is not from the victim group. The problem is with the perpetrator group, the Turkish government. I say the government, and I know I don't use Turkey because many, a lot of people within Turkey had, know about the Armenian genocide, know what had happened, and even intellectuals, even historians. But, uh, but, but the Turkish government is an omnipotent presence in Turkey, specifically in the past, uh, since, the, since the arrival of uh, President Erdogan, uh, who has been now assuming more authoritarian uh, tendencies in his way of ruling. Uh, the idea of a third country, such as the United States, to force Armenia to come into terms, in terms of uh, putting aside the Armenian genocide, because why? Because we recognize that, you know, we just gave you a kind of, a, uh, you know, a, 
satisfactory uh, card of recognizing the Armenian genocide. Uh, and I think that's uh, highly problematic, highly problematic. Of course, you know, uh, Turkey was, will always say, you know, come and sit with us. You are really going to reap the ben economic benefits. And that's part of the problems too with Azerbaijan, with Turkey, the lines to the railroad or the train, train, train line from, uh, from Zankezur. And, you know, it's, it's highly problematic, I think, whereby economic incentives are uh, where, where, where they're going to sell you economic incentives on the expense of forgetting your, forgetting the crimes that you were perpetrated against your ancestors. And that's, that's highly problematic, I think. This is The Blunt Post with Vic on KPFK 90.7 FM. I am your host, Vic Jorami, and you are listening to my interview with Dr. Pedros Dermatosian from the University of Nebraska at Lincoln. And we are discussing his latest book, The Horrors of Adana, Revolution and Violence in the Early 20th Century. I even question how much um, economic benefits Armenia will reap. Um, I, I, this is, you know, something similar to this was happening in 2007. I don't know if you remember <clears throat> when uh, Hillary Clinton was Secretary of State. Another sort of gun was put in the head of Armenia saying, uh, compromise, if you will, on the Armenian genocide. It's uh, Armenian genocide is not up for debate by anyone, period. Yeah, it, 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 it's, not part of a, it's not part of a gambling yeah. thing on the table, you know, if, you know I'll, okay, I'll remove the Armenian genocide card and let's sit together and be yeah. friends. Yeah, so Turkey is a NATO is a NATO nation that helped Azerbaijan orchestrate this genocidal attack only an hour, you know, a year and a half ago, almost two years ago, by bringing mercenaries, Syrian mercenaries, <clears throat> as well as ISIS and Pakistani and Libyan mercenaries. So I don't really know. I don't have a lot of hope for it. Uh, I hope to be wrong. Maybe something great will come out of it. We'll see. Um, but, um, but before we go, Petros, your book, Horrors of Adana, uh, how can people purchase it? Where? Uh, Horrors of Adana is available on Amazon. Just okay. write the Horrors of Adana on Amazon and you'll get it there. Uh, or you can, any other outlet, Barnes & Noble's Target, but also on the website of the Stanford University Press. But the fastest way to get it is through Amazon. Okay. And uh, uh, anything you'd like to add? Any questions uh, I might have missed, didn't ask well, you? Final thing I'd like to add here is that the, my message in the book is not about, about bad and good people. It's about how ordinary men, regular human beings from different backgrounds can become, can, can do barbaric, can commit barbaric crimes given the circumstances and the stressors. So the scenario of the Adana massacres have taken place in different parts of the world, in different societies, in different cultures. But the most important thing is what can we learn from the horrors of Adana and how can we really in the future try to prevent such events to take place?
That's the message of the book. And also to show that a phase, important phase of Armenian uh, history of the second phase of violence has been forgotten on the pages of Middle Eastern studies, of Ottoman studies, as at a time in which even the Omaha world, even the Omaha newspapers here in Nebraska have been extensively covering it on the front pages. Yeah. Internationally, it was known. Nationally, it was known. But yet again and again, human uh, European powers or uh, human or humans in general, in general have failed to stand up to their commitment of fighting against justice and against the uh, against the victims. It would have been the victims. Well said. Uh, thank you, Petros. So the horrors of Adana revolution and violence in the early 20th century, you can purchase it on Amazon. Petros, thank you very much for uh, being on the show this morning. Thanks and, for giving me the opportunity, Vic. Absolutely. And uh, good luck with the book. Thank you very much. That was my interview with Dr. Petros Dermatosian uh, from the University of Nebraska at Lincoln talking about his latest book, The Horrors of Adana, which is very important. It uh, basically shows how genocides uh, occur and what leads up to these genocides. Uh, his book is about the massacres of Armenians uh, in the couple of decades leading up to the Armenian genocide. Pedros, thank you very much for being on the show this morning, uh, and I hope to speak with you again soon. Before we go, I'd like to thank my producer, Ricky Herrera, without whom this show would not be possible, and KPFK, the station that brings you unfiltered and commercial-free news, opinion, and hopefully some inspiration. Thank you for joining me today on The Blunt Post with Vic. Tune in next Monday at 6 a.m. for another episode. For more information, please visit thebluntpost.com. You can also follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Vic Jarami at V-I-C-G-E-R-A-M-I. Thank you. The Blunt Post with Vic.